Welcome to Criminal Perspective. I'm Chris. I'm Andrew. So today we're going to be talking about a case that Andrew and I have followed for a long time. Did this happen before you were born, Andrew? Um, yep. Two 89? years before I was in 1989, I was born in 91. Yeah, I was five years old when this happened. But uh, this is somebody that Andrew and I have been talking to for about a decade now. Um, and the an- the 30th anniversary of the crime is tomorrow. Uh, on this episode, we're going to be interviewing Robert Bardo, who is pretty notorious for the stalking murder of actress Rebecca Schaefer in 1989. So uh, we're going to bring you part one of this interview on this show. And if you want to hear the second part of the interview, you can head over to our Patreon and subscribe, patreon.com slash criminal perspective. We put out weekly classified episodes, and this week's episode is going to coincide with this one. So you can get a whole other uh, part of the interview if you head over there and, and sign up. It's $2.99 a month for the just to get the, the weekly episodes. And um, in my opinion, it's totally worth it, but I am severely biased. Uh, what do you think about the Patreon content, Andrew? You like it or no? I think it's great. Big fan, I think huh? It's definitely worth it. You figure a coffee is probably not even $2.99 for one day. So absolutely not. You could, you know, cut your coffee habit down once a month by. By subscribing to our Patreon. Yep, we'll make you live longer. Who's your uh, favorite person on the on the Patreon episodes? Do you like Andrew or Chris better? Andrew, mm. he's a he's a lot better. Um, no face tattoos. <laughs> not a not a total weirdo. No, I, I think Andrew is way more weird than Chris. Yeah, that might be, <laughs> might be the case. All right, so let's uh, let's cut the bullshit here and we'll jump into Robert Bardo. So um. Robert Bardo, he uh, he suffered some abuse growing up um, and he he touches on it in the interview, but he doesn't go into detail. Do you know anything about that abuse, Andrew? Okay, so I'm reading here that he was abused by one of his siblings and he was placed in foster care shortly after he threatened to commit suicide. His family does have a history of mental illness, which I believe he did say that his mother had a mental illness and he himself was diagnosed with manic depression, contrary to what he says, being mm. that there's no mental illnesses that he's been diagnosed with. So, yeah. Um, does it say what type of abuse he suffered? Physical, sexual? No, it just says he was abused by one of his siblings. It doesn't really go into any specific details. I, I hope he I, I wish he would, because that could potentially shed shed some light on, you know, some of his his, his behavior. Yeah. Yeah. So after that, he was uh, very withdrawn and he spent a lot of time watching TV, which he he admits uh, he came across a promo for the for the TV show, My Sister Sam, one day. And that's the first time he saw Rebecca Schaefer. Um, he started watching the program and writing fan mail to Schaefer. And uh, eventually she wrote him back, thanking him for his support and sent him an autographed photo. Uh, before this, though, he did pursue other celebrities. Is that right? So this is this is kind of worth mentioning. And this is 1985 before he started stalking, uh, Schaefer. stalking Schaefer in 86. So he, Bardo was actually stalking child peace activist Samantha Smith before her death in a 1985 plane crash. And after she died, he moved on to Rebecca Schaefer. So that could have been another potential victim before she died herself. 
prior to the murder of Rebecca Schaefer, Robert Bardo was actually fixated with pop stars Madonna, Tiffany, and Debbie Gibson, which out of the three, the only one I recognize is Madonna. And imagine if Madonna would have been murdered instead of Rebecca Schaefer or, or any of those other two. I wonder uh, or, if he was if he was writing them fan mail and stuff as well. Yeah, it doesn't really specify, but it says that his, he he uh, fixated his sights onto or before Schaefer, he fixated with the three pop stars. But I'm I'm assuming even back then it was harder to get to Madonna and these other two than it was Rebecca Schaefer because she was an up and coming celebrity, right? Yeah, yeah, she was she was getting started. Madonna was fucking huge at that moment. Um, same with Tiffany and all them. So. Um, in 1987, Bardo flew to California and tried to go see Rebecca Schaefer on the set of My Sister Sam at the Warner Brothers Studios in Burbank, California. He showed up with a teddy bear and flowers, and he couldn't make it past security. Uh, he was he was at the front, and they would not let him get in. He left, and he came back again at some point and was turned away again. And uh, after My Sister Sam is canceled... Uh, Rebecca Schaefer plays a, a, a role in a film called Scenes from the Class Struggle in Beverly Hills. Um, Bardo's back home in Arizona now, and he's he's following her career and still writing her and everything. Um, and, and in that film, she has a love scene. And I, I think I remember seeing somewhere that Bardo wrote a letter to her talking about how upset that he was about that that scene. And because uh, he has this idea of her that she's so pure and, and everything and. Um, it, it just really upset him. So after this happened, Bardo hired a private investigator to find Rebecca Schaefer's home, which the PI was able to obtain through the DMV. Um, Bardo got this idea from the high profile attack on an actress named Teresa Saldana uh, years prior, in which a man paid um, a PI to track down uh, Saldana which he, uh, the PI obtained her information through the DMV and the obsessed fan attacked Saldana outside of her home with a knife. Saldana survived the attack and was in the press about it. And she made it, she was in a film about it and she played herself in the film. And it was about that story. And Bardo was familiar with this. And that's where he got the idea to hire a PI to get Rebecca Schaefer's information. So... After he had Schaefer's address, he then took a Greyhound bus from Tucson, Arizona to West Hollywood, where Rebecca Schaefer lived. Uh, he goes up to Schaefer's apartment on the morning of July 18th, 1989. Rebecca Schaefer answers the door and politely tells him to please not come to her, her residence. She appreciates his, you know, um, that he's a fan and everything, but says, hey, you know, please don't come to my house. Um, Bardo leaves. And he goes and uh, goes to a local diner that's nearby. And then he returns to Schaefer's apartment, rings her down again, which I think at the time Rebecca Schaefer was uh, reading for a script for um, one of the Godfather films, something like that. But anyway, she comes down to the door and she was visibly irritated and Bardo didn't say anything. He just pulled out a gun and shoots her. He then gets away. He makes it back to Arizona and uh, eventually he's taken into custody because he's being a public nuisance, obstructing traffic and declaring that he murdered Rebecca Schaefer. So Bardo made a full confession after that. And 
he was tried and convicted of first degree murder with a special circumstance of lying in wait. The prosecutor at the time, Marsha Clark, who later became known for an, an unsuccessful attempt at prosecuting O.J. Simpson on two counts of first degree murder. Uh, she did not choose to seek the death penalty in Bardo's case, and he was sentenced to life without uh, the possibility of parole after he was convicted. So that's a quick rundown on Robert Bardo's crime. And we're going to go ahead and, and jump to the interview. This is one part of the interview. If you want to hear the second part, you can uh, head over to patreon.com slash criminal perspective, and uh, we'll have it up over there. Um, when we get done with the interview, we're going to address some things that are said in the interview. And, and after we get done, I think anything regarding this case that you might be a little fuzzy on, we might be able to clear some stuff up. So, uh, yeah, keep listening after the interview, and we might be able to uh, make a little bit more sense of this case. So here it is, our interview with Robert Bardo. Okay, so uh, can we start out um, as far back as you can remember and go back as to what your upbringing was like, what your home life was like? Did you experience any trauma or abuse as a child? Well, I mean, there's issues that I uh, dealt with. Um, 
I, I, at this time, I, you know, I don't feel comfortable going too deep onto it, but, you know, it's just, you know, I dealt, I dealt with some turmoil that I had to deal with and everything, and it just, my, you know, got my nervous system wound up and everything. But when I was going to school, moving around, it became hard for me to have social interactions with friends and everything. And uh, as time grew on, I just became more of a loner. And uh, I had a hard time uh, socializing with my peers. I became more isolated, and I was excluded a lot. So it's just uh, I didn't connect with people very well. And I uh, also I tried a lot of different things, and I wasn't very good at them. So I was kind of uncoordinated and all. So that led to me to have low self-esteem. So I dealt with those issues also. Robert, what what mental illnesses were you diagnosed with? Can you go into detail about your crime that landed you in prison? Um, what led up to it? What happened? Well, I'm not, I'm not uh, you know, uh, I don't really want to talk too much about the crime itself, but I could uh, give you the basic details that, uh, uh, for me, uh, my crime, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in for prison for murder, obviously. I was sentenced to life without parole. Uh, first-degree murder with Langlois, best circumstance. Uh, my crime occurred July 18th of 1989 in Los Angeles, uh, near West Hollywood. Uh, I, I don't really want to go, go into too much detail about it, but uh, I was, uh, my case involved, my victim was Rebecca Schaefer. I uh, want to say that she was an uh, innocent, innocent victim of my actions, and I, uh, Took the turmoil of my life, and the uh, my, uh, my it's my responsibility for what had happened on that day, and uh, I just want to say that uh, you know I wish she was here, and I wish I had never done what happened. Do you think there's anything that could have prevented the murder itself? I, you know, when I look back in my life, uh, uh, I mean, I I didn't I was very narrow-minded in my thinking. And uh, I uh, just took a, uh, when I tried to see her at the studios, Burbank Studios, which is now Warner Brothers Studios in Burbank, California, I just, uh, back in 1987, well, May, uh, May, late May, early June of 1987, and the way the street uh, was talking to me, I internalized it and saw it as an insult, and I just, it made me feel rejected, and, and I found out later that Rebecca Shaver had nothing to do with what happened there. But when the chief of security, Jack Edgar, had spoken to me, he was saying she didn't want nothing to do with me. Because uh, I tried to give her a teddy bear, a big white teddy bear I bought at the alcohol bar in San Arizona. And uh, I had a florist on Melrose Avenue trying to send her that and some roses, but that was rejected. And I went to pick up the roses and the teddy bear. And it wasn't roses, the florist. Cheated me and got me some silk flowers that I didn't want. 
but uh, anyways, I picked up both of those from the chief of security. He spoke to me. His security guard, who was a British guy, British immigrant, took me on a tour of the studio, the main studio, and then I learned that for sure my sister Sam that she had started on was at a, a nearby studio that was part of the Bartlett Studios on Pass Avenue, and that's where the show was filmed, right next to Rolling Games back in the eighties. And uh, just you know, my encounters with the studio security there really kind of upset me, and that's what made me feel that animosity built up inside and the resentment that I challenged towards Rebecca. Because to me, the reason why I was interested in Rebecca is because, uh, you know, the things I read about her and that uh, she was a wallflower and that uh, she grew up in an academic family. So I identified with her, and plus she was cute and bubbly, and her personality, that attracted me to her. And I, uh, I just, you know, I felt an emotional connection in that sense. You know, that makes a lot of big deal of the fact that I wrote her and she wrote me back on a picture postcard, but that wasn't what led to the, the, my feelings of emotional connection, the fact that she was a loner growing up or she was isolated and excluded because I identified with that. That had more to do with it. And uh, my feelings about the studio trying to see her at the studio is what led my uh, internal feelings. And then, I, back, back at that time, I was a fan of the Beatles, and I uh, bought a book called The Love You Make by Peter Brown, who was the Beatles manager, and I bought that book at a B. Dalton uh, bookstore on Hollywood Boulevard. And reading that book, I read the last chapter about the guy who shot John Lennon, and I was, that's why I, Back in 1987, when I was 17 years old during the summer, I, it just came into my mind about that because I could identify with the fact that Chapman's father was in the military. And, and then I uh, and, and I took my resentment into negative territory, and that's what influenced me toward that direction. Speaking of uh, Mark David Chapman, the man who murdered John Lennon, I've I've read a few places online that you wrote to him prior to the murder of Rebecca Schaefer, asking him how the food was and how people were and how people were treated. Is that true? Well, no. What happened was is I saw a front line about Mark David Chapman, and I uh, wrote a letter to him before the murder, before I even knew who Rebecca. I think it, uh, I didn't, it had nothing to do with Rebecca Schaefer. It had to do with uh, as a fan of. Beatles and I read a John Lennon biography. I asked him why he killed John Lennon. That was the basic thrust of it. And he sent me some Christian material. He didn't respond. He sent me where this preacher was, a conservative preacher, and he was preaching against all these rock stars and against rock and roll music. But I, it had nothing to do with Rebecca Schaefer, the reason why I wrote him. But afterwards, I, I, when I was in the LA County Jail, I, uh, uh, you know, I tried to, uh, you know, I, 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 uh, I wrote to, uh, I, I don't know if I did write him or something like that, but I think I was trying to tell him that, uh, you know, I screwed up on my life by following, you know, doing what, you know, taking that resentment and doing what he did. I don't know if I, I did, I think I did, but I'm not really sure. I can't really remember too far, but it's basically, I was trying to, you know, at that time, I would say I was kind of trying to, you know, I don't know if I was expressing that he was a bad influence on me and I was kind of blaming him in a sense, uh, but it was actually on my fault for uh, t- taking my resentment and, you know, using that idea 
Right, yeah. Yeah, the reason why that's all important to me because I see a lot of young men nowadays take their resentments from being rejected or being socially isolated. And the reason why the gun issue is so important is because guns make it easier for people to harm people. So, Robert, uh, I'm. Yeah, I'm here. Uh, so I'm curious. Uh, so you said that this was basically something you took your years of rejection issues out on. Do you think that? Yeah. Do you think that? Given the, the the moment in time that Rebecca Schaefer wouldn't have been there, do you think it was possible you could have taken your rage out on other people? You know, if uh, if left unchecked, you know, I, I for me, uh, the violence that I I, I directed uh, was directed at her. That was the first time ever in my life I thought had those type of thoughts. And I wasn't, I wasn't the type of person to do a mass shooting or anything like that, so I wasn't into any of that. But when I watch TV, because I watch the news a lot, you know, on the day when TV is around here, and I see stories of young men who are, when they're rejected by women, they uh, turn to violence, and they usually do a lot of victims. And it's like, uh, you know, and what makes them able to do a lot of victims is the gun violence. And I... Uh, you know, I think about Rebecca a lot. I think about the things that she could have accomplished and how just unnecessary and just, you know, the old mistakes that she could have done. And this just, this wasn't the way I had planned my life when I was growing up. And I just wish she was here. And it breaks my heart to see all the suffering that goes on out there because of the people who, you know, go on to use gun violence. And that's my, one of my goals to try to erase that as much as possible. And I like to try to reach out to young men to get them to change their ways from becoming emotionally dependent on other people to deter them from violence and uh, to kind of change their mindset to uh, positive affirmation instead of negative thinking because that's all I did was negative thinking when I was in my teenage years is just, you know, I took, it, it, it put it into my mind, negative thoughts, and it just led me astray. And, and I think a lot of young men out there are just led astray by their own isolation and alienation and they just program themselves to violence. And I'm trying to, my hope is to get young men to change their ways and to see hope and by learning social skills get over their social anxiety so they can socialize with people better and I think that would improve their self-esteem and I think that would improve uh, this call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded it would get them out their negative mindset because that's one of my goals from my perspective is to change young men's minds so that's one of the reasons why I'm doing this interview with you to influence the people and talk about the issue on the anti-gun violence, and I'm just trying to uh, do things to 
regular violence in the world help lead people who feel isolated and alienated to help get them to get help and to learn the social skills to connect with people instead of me where I used my negative thinking and became more isolated and resentful and angry at the world and I you know I, I do miss you know Rebecca's presence in the world I think she could have done so much in the world over my stupid negative thinking and I really want to do things to change the trajectory of young men's lives who are headed towards the negative direction that I had done and I want to deter them from taking my path and I want to do positive things in that sense you know, while I'm here on earth so that's what I want to say on that. Robert, when you were in prison, you were stabbed multiple times. Um, being on the receiving end of that type of violence, um, what what was that like? Uh, I wasn't stabbed multiple times. Each time, I, uh, uh, like the first time in 1999, I was attacked by uh, a Nazi lowrider inmate. Uh, he was supposed to attack somebody else, but he got me. He only stabbed me once in the collarbone, and then he touched me. Later on, when I confronted him about it, uh, and then the second time was in July of late July of 2007, and the guy had like hit me a couple times, trying to uh, take out my eye, but he missed, and then he started punching at me. But I was never stabbed multiple times. That's just a media uh, misinterpretation. But he was uh, that was another white guy, tall, big white guy. But that to me. Uh, uh, both those incidents had to do with guys who were trying to take advantage of my case, uh, and I knew that, so I just, I just, you know, I practiced forgiveness to them, and, uh, you know, I, I, I attend Bible study services, and I, church services, and I, I just forgave them for what they had done, and, uh, and I just try to seek to understand, and I try to move forward. Because what the things I'm trying to do, the positive things I'm trying to do, and trying to get uh, young men to uh, change the tra- trajectory of their lives. And one of the books I'm reading right now is called Maximum Achievement by Brian Tracy, where he talks about positive, positive affirmations and autogenic conditioning, and how to get people to affirm and do tape affirmations, listen to classical music, to to uh, recording. Uh, affirmations to get the background of classical music to get their mind to where it's relaxed and then they affirm positive thinking and positive views. So that is called Maximum Achievement by Brian Tracy of Brian Tracy International, Swallow Beach, California. And that's one of those things that I'm, I'm taking up right now in addition to the Bible studies and the positive things concerning that. Between both stabbings, would you say that these inmates were trying to make a name for themselves by killing you, kind of giving them some type of status? Were they trying to make a name for themselves? Is that what you're asking? Because that's what I th- Yeah, I believe that's what they were trying to do. Uh, uh, yeah, they were, the first guy was trying to get in, in, into his, his little clique, and he was required to do that because I was on a yard that wasn't really a protective custody yard, so he was given... I guess he was given orders to attack somebody else, but instead he found me. But uh, he got away from that situation, and I forgave him. And he, I saw him again on another yard uh, at Bill Creek State Prison, and I just let it go. And then the other guy who attacked me, he did that for his own personal reasons, plus for notoriety, hoping to uh, 
you would prove his standing, I guess, by giving uh, me, but it didn't do anything for him. So. Besides Bible study and, and reading and advocating for change in gun laws, how do you spend your time in prison? Do you do you still keep up with television or radio? Well, occasionally, I listen, you know, I listen to uh, like oldies. I listen to like Casey Kasem's American Top 40 from the 70s on Sundays at 9 a.m. to 12 o'clock p- uh, p.m. Pacific time. That's one of I like listening to the oldie stations, and I listen to a station called KJO out of Fresno that plays classic hits. Uh, you know, I, and sometimes I'll listen to uh, talk radio just to. Uh, and then on uh, TV, I watch Good Morning America for the straw. I like keeping up with current events. I like watching, uh, when I pick it up, PBS Nova and science shows. I watch 60 Minutes, CBS Sunday Morning. Uh, you know, I try to watch shows that educate me because uh, I, like I like reading uh, popular science, popular mechanics, Discover Magazine, uh, anything to do with science I try to read. And... Uh, I got math books that I'm reading. I'm reading a basic physics book and I'm reading a basic chemistry book right now. So I'm um, studying all that type of stuff. So I'm passing my time doing that. I go to self-help groups that they have here. Uh, right now they're watching a soccer game on the Telemundo. Uh, I sometimes watch the Spanish news on uh, Telemundo. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, I just sometimes I do drawings for people because the people. Uh, give me stuff at the canteen, so I'll do some drawings of like Chucky or horror characters, because uh, they like that. Uh, or I'll draw Marilyn Monroe, or sometimes they like me to draw Donald Trump. Uh, people, uh, and I, they give me uh, like uh, food, or they'll give me stamps or stuff like that. So, do you uh, do you still enjoy um, writing to celebrities and fan clubs and things like that? thing of mine. Uh, I think that's been misinterpreted. Uh, but uh, there was a period where I uh, I, I, I did get uh, autographs from people, uh, but I'm not going to go into detail about that. I successfully got autographs from people. And, uh, and uh, this call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. Nothing bad happened regarding that, but I, I, I only did that because a friend of mine was doing that, and he was succeeding in doing it, and then I succeeded doing some of it. But then I'm not, that's not really my thing. Right now, my focus is on the anti-gun violence thing and the issues, that, the things that I discussed with you uh, regarding trying to hopefully reach out to get young men to change the trajectory of their lives to not embrace violence. Because too many people are influenced by seeing violent incidents or the violent things online, and they, they indoctrinate themselves. So I'm trying to hopefully come up with ways to get them to change the trajectory of their lives. That's my interest. I'm more interested in that and uh, studying the science, basic physics, chemistry, and computer science. That's my, the type of things I'm interested in nowadays. So um, I'm, I'm dedicated to self-improvement and positive affirmations and trying to reach people to ch- change their lives for the better. So you're no longer the man you were uh, almost 30 years ago. Yeah, I'm no longer the man of thinking about violence or... I'm not. You have 60 seconds remaining. I don't have violence in my heart anymore. I'm trying to improve the world. You know, I'm trying to bring about the change of the world, the positive change. You know, I want the, you know, I want to represent the love in the world that I want to see in the world instead of the negativity. And I'm trying to build up social connections in a positive way, not the way I did in the past. So. 
That was our interview with notorious stalker and convicted murderer Robert Bardo calling us from a California prison. That was part one. If you do want to hear part two, head over to patreon.com slash criminal perspective and uh, you can hear him address more things. Uh, some of his thoughts on gun violence and ideas and uh, he talks about his crime a little bit more and, and some of the, the details behind it. And uh, we address some more things over there on that episode. So if you want those weekly classified episodes, including that, head over to patreon.com slash criminal perspective and get you some of that good shit. Um, let's address some of the stuff that Bardo discussed with us. So he was abused as a kid. Uh, he didn't go into detail about the abuse, but I think we talked about that a little bit before. Um, he talks about his social awkwardness a bit and talks a bit um, about his increased isolation and seclusion that's when he started to get obsessed with Rebecca Schaefer, even though we know that he did have uh, fixations on other celebrities before her. He had a delusion that him and Rebecca had a, a connection and they were kind of kindred spirits, so to speak. And and he related himself to her in an unhealthy way that just wasn't realistic. You know, he, he had no connection to her. Um, he was just a fan. We talked about that a little bit. Um, he talks about trying to visit her on the set of My Sister Sam in 1987 and how he felt rejected and kind of insulted by Schaefer, not wanting to invite him in onto the set and spend time with him. Uh, he says in the interview, looking back on it now, Rebecca Schaefer had nothing to do with it and was the and it was the security guard who turned him away. Um, however, uh, Rebecca Schaefer's friend, Sue Cameron, has said in an interview that she was with Rebecca Schaefer on the set of My Sister Sam when Bardo showed up to the studio and the security called Rebecca Schaefer about letting Bardo onto the property and Schaefer declined him access. So uh, Bardo is either confused about that or misremembering or I don't know. Yeah, or outright delusional. But um there's at least one person that disputes what Bardo just told us in regards of remembering that. But he still talks about Rebecca Schaefer with fondness and and talks about her as if he knew her. Didn't you get that feeling, Andrew? Yeah, definitely. And and what's funny, what's funny about him is uh, I used to write him on and off for like a decade. And it's funny because he always used like once in a while, maybe once every six months, he would send me a drawing and it'd say in memory of Rebecca Schaefer. And it would be like Rebecca Schaefer with hearts all around it, you know, so like he still has that love and connection yeah. to her, even even Obsession. I kind of get that feeling like, you know, I kind of feel like since she rejected him and he knew she wouldn't be with him, that he would just you know, like cliche, you know, if, if I can't have her, nobody can. So he had to kill her to keep her. No, you know, I think like soul no, or, think, or whatever. No, I think oh, I'm going to I'm going to get to that right now. Um, But yeah, I, also, he when I, I wrote him on and off for a long time, too, he writes obsessively. We should tell everybody he'll send up to two, three letters a day sometimes. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. And his letters when I stopped are, writing him the first time, I, I didn't stop getting mail for like three months until after I stopped writing him. Like he'll write all over the envelope. Hi, how are you doing? Yeah. Mail, blah, blah, blah. 7 p.m. Uh, uh, hi. Can you look up this and this and this? He's. He's always wanting uh, facts and fan mail addresses of celebrities and especially the young Disney stars like back when Miley Cyrus was, you know, like underage, like the Hannah Montana show he was into and Zach and Cody and all these weird yeah. kid shows. 
Yeah, yeah, we'll talk about that because he's still very much um he's very obsessive and and stuff and he he tries to hide it, but it's mm, he it's he's full of shit. He's still very much obsessed with celebrities and notable people. But uh, so anyways, he talks about being a Beatles fan and reading about Mark David Chapman killing John Lennon and how that directly influenced him to act in the same manner. So Bardo is an admitted copycat killer of Mark David Chapman, um, if not by Chapman's or if not by Bardo's own admission, then by you can just look at the similarities in the crime. He attacked Schaefer at her home with a gun. He was carrying a copy of the book, The Catcher in the Rye, as did Chapman. Uh, this is not coincidence. Bardo absolutely modeled his crime after Mark David Chapman's murder of John Lennon. And uh, Bardo even sets the record straight that he wrote a letter to Mark David Chapman about why he killed John Lennon. And he thinks he, Bardo thinks that he wrote Chapman again after he was arrested to tell Mark David Chapman that he screwed up his life emulating his crime, which is pretty crazy. And I, I it's always kind of like floated around. But but now I think we kind of set the record straight that, you know, that is that is very legitimate. Bardo is a, a copycat killer of Mark David Chapman and even tried contacting him before and after the crime. So uh, I thought I thought it was telling that he said he wouldn't have inflicted that violence on anyone else or committed a mass casualty mass casualty crime when you asked them about that, Andrew. And uh, usually mass murder type crimes have an element of expression from the perpetrator. Bardo is saying that the violence was specifically for Rebecca Schaefer. It, it wasn't an expression. It was an act of his obsessive delusional thinking, a way for him to be forever linked to Schaefer in infamy. Uh, well, see, think... and and another thing that stuck out to me is he said he channeled his rage and reje rejection and resentment towards Rebecca Schaefer. So if so, let's let's say one day Rebecca Schaefer wasn't the intended target. Somebody pissed him off enough, you know, or he got rejected, you know, enough times. What's stopping him from going and shooting a bunch of people? Yeah, but I think the statement was in the victim choice. It was very focused. So I don't I don't know if he would have done that. I think. I think he's very focused here and it wouldn't it would be that would be if he was doing that, it would be kind of uh, directed at Rebecca Schaefer, but misdirected at the the individual victims who that were to come out on. And but that was a big part of his crime was the victim. It had to be her, you know, and, and I think that's supported by him mentioning the notoriety of his case as a basis for the attacks on him in prison. Um, it's also worth noting that he uh, he sees other inmates with notorious cases as notable figures as well. He he used to try to contact Scott Peterson from prison, and I know this because he inquired about contacting him to me, uh, trying to have me get Peterson's address for him and stuff. Um, he's also mentioned to me in letters about seeing one of the Menendez brothers on the yard at a former former prison he was at where they were both. Uh, housed. So I think that's very evident and really paints a clearer picture of his crime here. Um, I, I don't think he would have committed a mass murder. I think it was all in the, the choice of the victim. It had to be Rebecca Schaefer. It, he had to tie himself in infamy with her. It had to be her. Or was, somebody famous. It could have been someone else. I mean, the, the victim could have changed. It could have been a diff, different victim. It happened to be Rebecca Schaefer. But I think... Well, he was stalking... He was stalking Samantha Smith at the time, so yeah, had but she I not think... died, perhaps he would have done the same thing with her, and she would have been the, the victim. 
Could have been. It just would have been a different name. Everything else yeah. would have been the same. It just would have been a different name. You know, uh, nothing about the crime would have changed. Oh, yeah. Every, all, all these elements still would have been there. It just would have been a, a different person on the receiving end of it. But yeah, also you mentioned earlier, and I, I want to touch on this again. He's still he's still very into entertainment and media, and he claims he doesn't have a desire to contact people he finds noteworthy. And um and that he he kind of did it as a hobby to stay busy and get autographs. He's full of shit. He's outright lying because he obsessively asks about people that he takes interest in. He wants their fan mail, their home address, email addresses. Um and he asks about this stuff constantly. He do, he does this to this day, right, Andrew? Yeah, he does. A few years ago, when I when I, when I wrote him regularly, um, he would ask. I don't know for, fan, yeah, like you said, like email addresses, fan addresses. He'd want photos of specific people. Uh, yeah. At the time, Jessica Alba was one. Miley Cyrus. Um, What's the woman's name that plays Lizzie McGuire? Um, I mean, there's, uh, yeah, Hillary Duff. Yeah, there's, Hillary Duff. There's, there's there, just a, there's so many. Uh, I don't know, I don't know how I knew that, but, <laughs> um, so, yeah, he just he he has so many that he constantly asks about. He, I mean, he still he latches onto these people and he he tries to get close to them still from prison. He because he has an agenda that he wants to talk about and things like that and. He doesn't like when that's pointed out, but that's the truth. Robert Bardo is still a fucking dangerous dude. He still obsesses over people. And um, yeah, I mean, he's he's where he should be. Uh, and if it wasn't Rebecca Schaefer, he would have focused that on someone else. It, everything would have been the same. It would have, you know, the same obsessive behavior, the the delusions, the that he has a connection to this person. It, it's, you know. He's he's right where he should be. Um, is he is he currently on a special needs yard in prison? Um, well, as of 2016, he was, but I know he was moved. I, I believe it was 2016. It, so, was he was he on the special needs yard because he had been attacked? I mean, of course, he's high profile. I mean, whether I mean that the I mean yeah, high high profile inmates go to SNY yards you know, a good amount of the time. I know Phil Spector's on a SNY yard at Corcoran, um, or, or at least he was the last that I knew. Um, you know, I'm sure Bardo is Bardo's been attacked a couple times and, and he suggests that that's in, in part because of the notoriety of his crime. So, uh, but yeah, he's, he's basically on a yard with child molesters and rapists and, uh, gang dropouts and snitches and all that good stuff. So yeah, it's, He's right where he needs to be, and 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 it's very easy to to pick apart his interview and see where he's not being completely genuine because it's not in favor of what he wants to present. Which I think that was part of the reason that he wanted to do this is because he wanted to present himself a certain way. So uh, we know him a little bit better than that. We know his his life and his case a little bit better than that. So we're not going to let him pull the wool over anyone's eyes on fucking our show. So that was part one of our interview. I've said it a million times already. Head over to patreon.com slash criminal perspective. Check out part two next week coming out on uh, all the wonderful podcast platforms, Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean what have you we have uh we're re-releasing part one of our two-part interview with rick staten if you don't know who rick staten is uh 
He's a very interesting guy. He's been corresponding with murderers for about 30 years. He was John Wayne Gacy's exclusive art dealer that brought John Wayne Gacy's art out to the public. Uh, he's been in films like Collectors, which you can go watch on YouTube. Great film. Uh, Serial Killer Culture, which is a, a, a film done by John Borowski. You may have seen it on Netflix. He's currently a filmmaker himself working on a documentary project uh, titled Unholy Grails. And he has a, a feature film called In a Madman's World about the the Wayne Henley uh, Dean Coral case, uh, which he's obsessed with and knows absolutely more than anybody in the fucking world about other than Wayne he Wayne Henley or David Brooks. And uh, such an interesting guy to talk to on the first part of our interview. We t interview, we talk a lot about Gacy, his first visit to death row, a lot of his interactions with Gacy and what that time was like. Uh, we also talk about how he got the opportunity to go see the Cielo Drive bungalow where the infamous Tate LaBianca Manson family murders occurred. Uh, he was there just months before it was demolished. And uh, he talks a lot about that and uh, just super interesting, super fun to talk to, just a great storyteller, very captivating dude. And I was, I you knew him beforehand, but that was my first time meeting him and talking with him. And I was so fucking pumped because I've known who Rick is for you know, 15 years now. So it was so cool to, to fucking talk to him and hear all these crazy stories firsthand. So we have part one of that interview coming out next week and uh, yeah, check out our Patreon content, hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can find us on any of that. Leave us a review on Apple. Let us know what you think about the show. Uh, send us an email at criminalperspective187 at gmail.com. And uh, you can uh, diss Andrew, talk about his mom or something like that. And, we, we like to have fun around here. So, uh, yeah, we'll be uh, bringing you another one next week. So, uh, from sunny Orlando, Florida, and hot, humid Burlington. Is that where you are? Yep. I don't even know where you are. Sneaky, sneaky guy. Um, yeah, so uh, we'll, we're wrapping this one up, and thank you so much for listening. <laughs>